Please open your Bible or Pew Bible up to Luke chapter 4. From now until Easter, we're going to reflect on the life of Jesus from select passages in the Gospel of Luke. Luke's basic message, since we're going to be jumping around in the Gospel, what he wants to tell us is summed up in the angel's message to the shepherds at Jesus' birth. Good news of great joy for all people. For unto you is born a Savior who is the Messiah the Lord. That's his basic message. Good news. A savior is here. Now it only takes a moment's reflection to see that our world needs saving. Look around us. What do we see? Bitter divisions, rampant inflation, corruption, drug epidemics. A pandemic has shown us how vulnerable our world is. And as it draws to an end, Instead of a sigh of relief, we find ourselves on the brink of war. But the problem is not just out there in the world. If we're honest with ourselves, the problem is also in here. We ourselves need a savior. We know the lure of temptation. Perhaps it's the temptation to misrepresent ourselves or a situation to our boss or our teacher or our parents to avoid trouble. Perhaps it's the temptation to look at things we ought not to on our phones and computers. We know the pull of putting ourselves and our needs above others, the pull to respond in anger when our control is threatened. In short, we need good news, our world and ourselves. We need a savior. Someone who will bring peace, who will put the world right, who will put us right. And Luke writes to us saying, here is good news. Here's a savior who can put things right. But this isn't a Marvel movie. This savior isn't a fictional superhero. Luke says this is history based on eyewitness accounts. This is a real story about the real savior of the real world. These are things that really happened. Let's read together Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. I'll read it out loud. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. But Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
And when the devil had ended, ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is God's word. In this chapter, there's three temptations, and so you probably won't be surprised to hear that there are three truths I want you to see in this passage. God's word is enough, God's worship is central, and God's care is trustworthy. But you probably know me well enough, at least many of you, to guess that I'm also going to complicate things a little bit, okay? To catch what's really going on in this story, to understand why this is a story that's good news for us, we need to read it in context. So if you have your Bible open to Luke chapter four, just glance above, look back over chapter three, and you're gonna see two things. First, in chapter three, verses 21 and 22, we see the story of Jesus being baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. Now, if we reflect on that story for a moment, it's a little bit odd. Jesus, uh, Luke says John the Baptist was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, why would Jesus, who Paul said knew no sin, need to be baptized for the repentance for forgiveness of sins? It's a good question. Well, perhaps you remember from Luke's well-known Christmas story that the angel Gabriel tells Mary she will miraculously become pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit, and her son Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High and Holy, for indeed he will be the Son of God. But Jesus, although the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, holy, doesn't remain distant. He's not above his people. He doesn't come born in a palace, and we never see him. No, the Son of God becomes one of us. And by his baptism, he identifies with sinful humanity in need of repentance. He takes our role on himself. By his baptism, Jesus is saying, I willingly take on myself the burden of humanity's sin, their need for repentance. He says, I will face temptation on humanity's behalf. And then when he's baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove and a voice from heaven declares, you are my beloved son. Okay, that's the first piece of context for the temptation story we need to see. Jesus takes our place at his baptism where he is declared to be God's beloved son on whom the Holy Spirit rests. But we see a second bit of context. In Mark's gospel, right after Jesus' baptism, it says immediately he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. And in the order of Luke's story, that seems to be chronologically what happens next. But do you see Luke puts that genealogy in between verses 323 through 338? It begins in 323. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Okay, that's interesting. A voice from heaven has just said, you are my son, and now Luke says, but many people suppose he was the son of Joseph. So there's a little bit of a question there. Whose son is he? Then the genealogy proceeds with a few familiar names, but many more unfamiliar names, until it comes to its end in 338. Uh, you know, Joseph was the son of so-and-so, so-and-so, on down the list, until we get to the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now we have two sons of God in Luke chapter 3. Jesus has said, this is my son, 
But Adam is also said to be the son of God. Neither one has a human father. Okay. So do you see how Luke, by inserting this genealogy, how he skillfully juxtaposes Adam and Jesus? Jesus takes on humanity's role at his baptism, and that goes all the way back to Adam in the garden. Remember the chapter divisions and headings in your Bible got added later for convenience, and that's well and good. But as Luke wrote it, it immediately goes from Adam, the son of God, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, went into the wilderness. Back to back, we read of Adam, the son of God, and Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the 20th century German theologian, comments, the Bible only tells two temptation stories, the temptation of the first man and the temptation of Christ. That is, the temptation which led to man's fall and the temptation which led to the devil's fall. All other temptations in human history have to do with these two temptations. Adam and Jesus are both tempted by the devil. Adam in a garden full of food, all of his needs cared for, is tempted to eat against God's command. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, hungry with no food. But again, he's tempted to eat, perhaps against God's command. Okay, with this double context in mind, the baptism and the genealogy pointing back to Adam, let's turn to our story. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, and now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, is led by the Spirit. Notice the emphasis on the Spirit over and over in Luke here. He's led into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. The temptation is from the devil, and yet Jesus is led into the wilderness where he is tempted by the Holy Spirit. And so this is not just the story of one particular person facing temptation. Rather, the battle lines are being drawn for a cosmic battle, a showdown between the Son of God full of the Holy Spirit and the devil and the forces of evil. Although Luke says Jesus is tempted throughout the 40 days in the wilderness, we're only told about the three climactic temptations, which concern in turn provision, power, and protection. But they also each concern God's character. Is God really good? Will he really provide? Will his plan really work out? Will he really protect? And each concerns Jesus' character as well. What kind of Messiah will he be? How will he use his power? The occasion for the first temptation is Jesus' need for provision. We're told in verse 2 that Jesus ate nothing during those 40 days, apparently having determined to fast. And in one of the greatest understatements of all time, Luke tells us after 40 days without food, he was hungry. Okay. Adam was tempted to eat contrary to God's command in a garden full of food, and now Christ is tempted to eat in the wilderness after 40 days without food. But it's not even obvious that what he's being tempted to do is inherently wrong. Is it necessarily wrong for the Son of God to turn a stone into bread? It's not obvious why. After all, when the 5,000 are in the wilderness and need food, Jesus famously, miraculously provides bread for them. What then is the problem going on here? 
Well, we need to look at the particulars both of the temptation and the verse from Deuteronomy that Jesus quotes to clarify what's happening. First, the temptation in verse 3 begins precisely at the point established at Jesus' baptism. At the baptism, a voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son. And now the devil doesn't deny that outright, but he subtly raises a doubt. If you are the son of God, if you really are God's beloved son, then surely you can tell this stone here to turn into bread. Again, there's echoes of the Adam story in the garden. Do you remember Adam and Eve in the garden? The devil there doesn't outright contradict God, but he subtly asks, did God actually say you shall not eat? Again, here to Jesus, he seems to be saying, did God actually say you are my beloved son? The devil's temptations characteristically begin by raising these sorts of subtle doubts about God's word about his commands. The temptation then is not to do something intrinsically wrong, but it does begin from doubting God's word. If you are God's son, then surely you have a right to provision to use your power to provide for yourself for your own personal needs. Jesus then is faced with what we could call a challenge of discernment. A voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son. Now a second voice says, if so, command this stone to eat. Okay, is this voice in continuity with the voice from heaven? Or is it a voice over against that ought to be rejected? Is this a self-serving use of his power? Or is is it Jesus' right as the son of God? Let's see then how Jesus responds. In verse 4, When faced with this challenge of discernment, he turns to Scripture, to God's written word. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, to get Jesus' point in quoting this passage and the first truth I want you to see this morning, we need to look back at Deuteronomy, which Jesus is quoting. There in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, Moses is reminding Israel of their journey. He says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Does that sound familiar? 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days in the wilderness. That God might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Moses says the lesson of the wilderness period is this, God's word is enough. God's word is enough. And when Jesus quotes this verse from Deuteronomy, he didn't just do a quick Google search Tell me verses about bread and pull that out. No, he's making the same point. He's saying God's word is sufficient. God's word is enough. I think, in fact, that Jesus understands everything that's going on in this temptation in the wilderness in light of this passage from Deuteronomy. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness being humbled and tested to learn to obey God and to learn that God's word is enough. And now Jesus symbolically reenacts this wilderness period, being tested for 40 days. 
He has humbled himself, taking on Israel's role. He says, man does not live by bread alone. And I'm not going to use my power as the son of God to get around the experience of humanity. No, I'm going to live as a man dependent on God's word. So Jesus' implied response to the temptation is man does not live by bread alone, but by every word, every promise, every command that comes from the mouth of God. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses continues, he says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. Okay, the devil's temptation to Jesus is saying, if you're the son of God, then it's your right to miraculously provide for yourself. And yet Jesus discerns another aspect of being a child. A child is obligated to honor and obey their parents. And so Jesus is saying, no, it's not that I have the rights to supernatural provision, but rather as God's son, it is my obligation to obey him, to keep his commandments and walk in his ways. Friends, this is a perennial challenge. Jesus faced down temptation in the wilderness, but it doesn't mean that we're free from temptation. We know the same temptation to live by God's word or prioritize our own perceived needs. And so the question is before us, is God's word really enough? We face a constant desire for more. A bit larger house would be nice. A bit more money would be helpful. A bit newer car would be fun. But can we say God's word is enough? I trust in his promise. I'm not going to put my desire for gain above God's word. Christians face constant pressure that says living by God's instructions in the area of our sexuality means denying ourselves. And in fact, you're not even going to live a fulfilled life. You're going to miss out. And so we ask again, is God's word enough? Well, Jesus says, yes, it is. If the first temptation concerns provision and a challenge for what Jesus' sonship means, the second temptation concerns power and what kind of Messiah he will be. Next, somehow that's not entirely clear, the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a mere moment of time. Somehow Jesus sees all the nations of the earth and perhaps even the unfolding of history in a moment of time. And the devil says to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If then you will but worship me, it will all be yours. Again, the temptation comes in half-truths and insinuations. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that looks ahead to the coming king, the coming Messiah. And in Psalm 2, this king speaks and he says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. So it's part of the Messiah's job to possess the nations of the earth. That's part of his mission. Okay, this seems like an easy way to fulfill that mission here. The Messiah, God's son's promised authority over the nations. Is this then how he ought to fulfill that? And we have to take this seriously as a real temptation to Jesus, the possibility of setting up a kingdom even mightier than the Romans, but also more humane than the Romans. Jesus could set up a kingdom that provides genuine care for those under his rule. 
but it would mean a compromise. Authority and glory are within his grasp if he will worship the devil for but a moment. Again, Jesus responds to the temptation by quoting Deuteronomy 6.13. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Here's the second truth that I want you to see this morning. God's worship is central. God's worship is central. Now, you can say, yeah, 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 we know that. We sing worship songs. That's important. And go too quickly. But slow down here for a moment. See how profoundly this truth is driven home. Jesus is being offered here the entire world. If he will but compromise in his worship. And Jesus says it's not worth it. Worship is so central to Jesus' identity, to his mission, to his beliefs about what it means to live a truly human life, that it should not be compromised even, even to gain the entire world. We can put it quite clearly. Worship of the true God is more important than anything else in the world. Do you see then, Jesus is saying that worship is radically central to all of life. Indeed, it's the purpose of our lives. Jesus came with a mission and a purpose to establish God's kingdom, to take humanity's place, to put things right. But he can't do that unless he lives a truly human life. And he's crystal clear on this point. The purpose of all human life, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. He can't establish God's kingdom if he glorifies someone other than God. Indeed, any compromise on this point would mean that Jesus doesn't usher in the kingdom of God, but a false kingdom. Tolkien captures this temptation well in The Fellowship of the Rings. If you're not a Lord of the Rings person, I'm sorry, but uh, I try to read it every couple years. And in The Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo offers the one ring, the ring of power, to Gladriel, the good queen of the elves. He says, you are wise and fearless and fair, Lady Gladriel. I will give you the one ring if you ask for it. It's too great a matter for me. Then Gladriel laughed with a sudden clear laugh. I do not deny that my heart has greatly desired to ask what you offer. For many long years, I had pondered what I might do should the great ring come into my hands. And now at last it comes. You will give me the ring freely. But in place of the dark Lord, you will set up a queen. And I shall not be dark, but beautiful and terrible. All shall love me and despair. It's a perennial temptation to use power wrongly to try and bring about God's kingdom. And although our ends might be noble that we're trying to bring about God's kingdom, If we compromise on the essentials, worship of the true God, it will end up perverting God's kingdom. Like Lady Gladriel, Jesus, he recognizes, yes, he could set up a better kingdom than the Romans. He wouldn't be dark, but beautiful and terrible. All would love him and despair. It's not the kind of kingdom he came to bring. And so the question here is, what kind of Messiah will he be? He's offered authority and glory But instead, he recognizes that the path he is called to is a path of suffering, of serving God only, God alone, even if it ultimately leads to the cross. 
Jesus has taken it upon himself to stand in the place of sinful humanity. And so his path leads to suffering before glory. He establishes his kingdom only through the cross. His crown is not of gold, but of thorns. That's what kind of Messiah he will be, a Messiah who believes God's worship is central. The third temptation then concerns neither provisions nor power, but protection. If you're so radically committed to God that you will not compromise on his worship, are you sure God is equally radically committed to you? That seems to be the force of this temptation here. The devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. This temptation is subtle. Again, the devil introduces a note of doubt. If you are the son of God, if. Well, surely God's son has a right to divine protection. But do you see he's subtly driving a wedge between the father and the son? He says, you don't simply have to take God's word for it that you're his beloved son. You can prove it right now. Just jump off the temple and his angels will protect you. This time, the devil even has Bible verses to back up his temptation, which is an important reminder to us, just as an aside, that simply because someone cites some Bible verses, it doesn't mean that we can turn our discernment off and just say, yeah, yeah, I believe whatever this person's saying. Even the devil can use the Bible. Jesus responds again by quoting from this pivotal section of Deuteronomy, from Deuteronomy 6.16. Jesus answered him and It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus' point is this. God's care is trustworthy. God's care is trustworthy. It's reliable. God can be trusted to care for his own. He doesn't have to prove his care and love for his people through flashy but ultimately pointless miracles like catching Jesus if he jumps off the pinnacle of the temple. Have you ever done one of these trust falls, maybe in class or a team building exercise? You lean back and you trust your teammates are going to catch you. I guess there's no one behind me. I better not do it. Uh, That would be bad. You trust your teammates, your fellow students, your coworkers are going to catch you. Well, that's what the devil's tempting Jesus with here. The ultimate trust fall. He's saying, you trust God so much, you're going to worship him only. You say his word's enough. Well, here, prove that you trust him. Throw yourself from this temple. Now, superficially, that looks a bit like it fits with the truth that God's care is trustworthy. If his care is trustworthy, then what harm could there be in proving it? But actually, it's precisely the opposite. If you trust someone, your parents, your spouse, a close friend, you don't make them prove that they're trustworthy with flashy but ultimately meaningless tests, right? If you trust your spouse and they say, well, I'm going here or there, You don't then track them with GPS and follow them in your car and make sure they're going there. That's not trusting, trying to prove things one way or another. Jumping off the temple might look like Jesus is trusting God, but in fact, it would be the opposite. It would be saying, I will trust you if you prove that you care for me by this audacious, flashy sign, by a miracle that's ultimately pointless. Instead, Jesus shows he trusts God's care by living in humble dependence and obedience to God. 
Again, the context of Deuteronomy 6, where he quotes from, is illuminating. The paragraph he quotes reads in full, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you. If you believe that God's care is trustworthy, the way to live accordingly, according to Deuteronomy 6, which Jesus quotes, is not to throw yourself off a building and trust God's care, but rather to live your life according to his commandments, trusting that God is teaching us a way of life that is ultimately for our good, that it will go well with you. And again, that is what Jesus commits himself to. He says, God's care is trustworthy. And therefore, I will diligently keep his commandments and do what is right and good in his sight. That is the proof that I trust God, not some audacious, absurd miracle. As we conclude, though, we need to remember how Luke sets this story up. It's not just an account of a good man facing temptation with a few helpful tips for how we can face temptation. Remember, Luke frames this as a cosmic battle. The spirit of God leading Jesus into battle on one side and the devil and forces of darkness on the other. Jesus is standing in the place of Adam. He faces the temptation that Adam faced, indeed a far greater temptation in far more difficult circumstances. But this time, the second son of God, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, doesn't fall in the face of temptation, but stands firm in humble dependence on God's word and care committed to God's worship. And so we're told at the end of the story in verse 13, after the devil had ended every kind of temptation, after he'd run out of tricks, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. The opportune time points forward to the devil's last stand when he conspires to have Jesus crucified. But again, it's not Jesus' downfall, but the devil's own downfall. For at the, cri- at the cross, Jesus fulfills his mission of taking humanity's role upon himself. Collectively and individually, we as humans have failed to obey God's word. We failed the first temptation, saying his word's enough. We have worshipped things besides God, and we have worshipped in compromised ways. We failed the second temptation that Jesus faced. And we have distrusted God's care. We've doubted his goodness and his love for us. We failed the third temptation. We've broken God's commands, and so we deserve the due penalty, the punishment for worshiping false gods, for breaking God's law. But on the cross, Jesus Christ establishes the kingdom of God by buying back his own by paying that penalty that we earned by failing those temptations. And so the devil's last trick is his own downfall. He thinks on the cross he's beaten Jesus. And yet on the third day when Jesus rose again, comes forth from the tomb, the reality of what happened on the cross is revealed. It's not the triumph of death, but the triumph of life, the triumph of the Son of God, the true and greater Adam. Let us pray. Lord, we desperately need a Savior. 
We look around and our world is a mess. We look inside and our own hearts are disordered. We need a savior who can put things right, who not only establishes a kingdom, but can even restore our hearts. And so we ask, or we thank you that you came, that you took on the role of humanity. We thank you that you faced temptation on our behalf and that you prevailed with integrity and dependence and obedience on God. We thank you that you were obedient to God and humble even to the point of death on a cross for our life. Lord, we ask, as, as Bonhoeffer said that we, we saw earlier, there's only two temptations, Adam's and Christ. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, increasingly it would be Christ within us tempted who would prevail in the face of temptation rather than Adam and the fall within us. Be at work within our hearts even this morning, making us more like Christ, teaching us to trust and believe in this great Savior. Amen.